This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. The BFM Breakfast Grill, connecting you to the top people and ideas. Powered by U-Mobile. 5G now with you. BFM 89.9, I'm Philip C and this is The Breakfast Grill. Today we got a treat for you as I speak to Sebastian Malaby, celebrated author on his latest book, The Power Law, Venture Capital and the Making of the New Future, as we dwell deeper into the origins of the venture capital industry. Morning, Sebastian. So good to have you here. Now, many have this perception that venture capital is a very recent phenomenon, but your book really charts out a history that's more than half a century ago, isn't it? That's right. I mean, I date the beginning of the Silicon Valley venture capital story to the moment when Arthur Rock, a financier from uh, New York, showed up in uh, what was then, you know, the Santa Clara Valley, wasn't called Silicon Valley yet, and financed uh, Fairchild Semiconductor, which became the kind of grandfather of a lot of the later semiconductor and other tech firms in the Valley. And that was 1957. And and since then, it's evolved incredibly. I mean, at this assumption, it was originally termed liberation capital. It's a very uh, unwieldy term com- com- when you consider to what it is today. Yeah, I mean, liberation capital is slightly my uh, name for it, um, inspired a bit by Tom Wolfe, who wrote a famous essay about uh, Fairchild. They didn't really call it liberation capital, but my point is that what Arthur Rock was doing was liberating engineers from bigger companies where they were kind of locked up and couldn't always get to explore the inventions they wanted to explore. And by bringing them out of those big companies, giving them some capital, you liberated them to pursue their dreams. And so that process of taking talent, extracting it from larger corporate enterprises, Mm. moving them into these startups, which were more nimble, more experimental, really powered innovation. At that time, most people think of the company man. Most people think about having that steady and stable job. So perhaps the inception of venture capital was a front to that. Exactly. I mean, the classic um, business book of the 1950s was Organization Man, describing the trajectory of the white-collar worker who stayed inside one hierarchical corporation until retiring at the age of 60 with a gold watch. And that was the deal. And the idea of leaving a company halfway through your career was thought of as as treachery. And that's why the eight founders of Fairchild in 1957 were known as the traitorous eight, because it was treachery at the time. And Arthur Rock, I mean, I could have called it kind of treachery capital, right? (laughs) He was sponsoring the idea that you can leave, you can say to your boss, I'm out of here. Uh, and that was an affront to the you know big corporation culture of the 1950s. Do you think that whole story could have been played out anywhere else in the world? Or was it just only the unique ingredients of Santa Clara Valley or now called Silicon Valley that enabled that to happen? So that's a really great question. And my answer is that um, it could have happened anywhere. And I think that's a very encouraging message for the rest of the world, right? Mm. For Southeast Asia, for Latin America, for Europe, which has been a bit behind in terms of venture. I think to understand that what you need to make this work is a particular kind of risk capital, which is prepared to take bets that might well lose, but has a kind of power law mentality that says, I can lose on eight out of 10 bets, but the last two will be so exponentially terrific that it will pay me back for my losses. Once you have that mentality in the the investment side, and you pair it with good engineering skill Mm. on the entrepreneur side, uh, then you've got you know, you're ready to go. And um, 
That can happen in Silicon Valley by a historical accident. That's where it started. But now it's spreading, you know, all over the U.S. to different regions and outside the U.S., as you know very well, uh, you know, in, in Southeast Asia and in India and China and Europe a bit, people in India, yeah. people all over the place. And, it's and become a global exactly phenomenon, great. right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, and that's that's why your question is so good, because the answer is it didn't have to be Silicon Valley. It can be anywhere. Yeah, which it comes to the point about the title of the book, Power Law, and it runs against the whole understanding of the normal distribution curve, where you said just now you make these huge bets. It's a whole realignment of how we understand risk. Perhaps if you can just share an understanding of what this power law is, because for me, it, it goes, I think, contrarian to human nature. Yeah, that's right. Um, I mean, one way of just describing the difference between the normal distribution and the power law is to think about the average height of American men, right? So uh, the average height of American man is five foot ten, and something like you know two thirds of all the men are within three inches of that average. Um, and so if you imagine a movie theater, uh, and at the back there is a seven foot uh, NBA basketball star, and he gets bored of the movie and walks out the average height of the residual man hardly shifts because there's so much clustering around that average that one seven-foot guy just doesn't make any difference. Whereas, if you think not about the height, but rather the wealth of American men, and instead of the seven-foot NBA star at the back, you've got Jeff Bezos, and he walks out because he's bored of the movie, the average wealth in that movie theater will collapse, right? Because Bezos is so far richer so far in the tail of the distribution um, that just one person walking out can change everything. And in the same way with venture capital investments, you know, one key bet in a portfolio can return two times the whole fund or three times the whole fund. So one, you know, one out of 10 makes all the difference because instead of everything being clustered around the average, um, you get this sort of, you know, majority that fail and then a few that just do incredibly well. And and that's the power law. They grow exponentially. Uh, and, and that requires investors to shoot for big outcomes. If you try to get just like average outcomes, yeah. there is no useful average. The law of averages manage. just doesn't work here, isn't it? That's right. And that's not like stock market investing, where mm. when you invest in public equities, uh, most, you know, it is a normal distribution, pretty much, you know, most of the time we'll get something close to the average return and, and not miles from that. And this power law works because there are other laws that are driving and enabling it to make make it happen. I mean, an example is the Moore's Law, Perkins Law. These laws essentially enable us to make the power law succeed within the venture capital industry, isn't it? Yeah, I think there's multiple power laws working in Silicon Valley, and that's why I chose the title. There is, as you say, a technological power law where you know semiconductors might double in power every two years. That's Moore's Law. There's Metcalfe's Law that says that the value of a network for example, the internet, uh, grows as the square of the number of users. So those are those sort of you know, underlying technological um, exponential curves. But you've also got just generally with startups, you know, most startups, whether it's a restaurant or a dry cleaner, many fail early on, right? And a few yeah. last and grow. And so you have a sort of startup power law. Then you've got a power law in terms of the investment partnerships. So some venture capital partnerships generate the lion's share of the total returns in the sector. 
So up and down the stack, as they say, you've got this power law at work. You're making this mention on failure and how sometimes, especially within the VC industry, failure is some sort of badge of honour. Is that really what distinguished the East Coast and West Coast at its original start? That, you know, in the West Coast, failure was essential. Failure was necessary to be successful, whereas in the East Coast, it was totally shunned and unacceptable. I mean, part of my research process is to try and speak to as many venture capitalists in as many places as as I could. And so I went off to Boston and talked to all the um, sort of surviving venture capitalists who had been active in the 1970s towards the early part of the history. And one of them said to me with great pride, you know, that he'd made 40 investments in his career and not a single one had lost money. And I sort of was laughing internally because on the West Coast, if you said that, you would be a loser. I mean, of course... Missed opportunities. You weren't taking taking enough risk. Yeah. And so that, I think, for me, encapsulated the way that the mentality in Boston was, you know, don't lose your money. The Boston financial tradition is much more East Coast traditional. And so you have companies like Prudential and Fidelity and the names of those companies are communicating. Speaks for itself, yeah. Yeah, it's conservative. Yeah. Essence of the book really is how, you know, the industry approached risk. And of course, when you think about the story of power law, it's all these big risky bets, but that's not really, really true, isn't it? Because there were a lot of developments in the VC industry that sought to mitigate risk. I mean, the way you kind of did the funding, the way you kind of invested and brought people into management, how you turned around these amateur businesses. There was quite a lot of risk mitigation in the process in addition to taking all these risky bets, right? That's right. And so one of the you know interesting things is if you can't sell an investment, which is true of a startup, once you've invested your capital, you know, it's not on the stock market, you can't just sell the stock. So you're stuck with this thing. So how do you mitigate the risk in an environment where you can't turn around and sell it? Well, you know, you go on the board of the startup, you watch very carefully what the entrepreneur is doing. If you think the entrepreneur is steering the startup off a cliff and you're going to lose your money, you do your best to raise questions and persuade that entrepreneur to think again. Uh, And if the entrepreneur is having a problem, like, you know, the accounting function is a mess, you say, don't worry, I'll bring you four great accountants who have got experience with startups, and you can choose the one you like. And so you proactively fix problems for the entrepreneur. And that's how you mitigate risk. And the story of Atari was hilarious. I mean, if any professional went into the business at that time, nobody would even give it a second look. So how did someone... You know, how did the VC industry get to say, okay, this company had the potential. I'm willing to invest, get into that hot tub and really journey with the founder. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about the first uh, gaming company uh, that invented this video game called Pong, which was so simple, you could play it no matter how drunk you were. That was one of the attractions. And so it did very well in bars in Berkeley. Um But the culture of Atari was, as you say, I mean, the board meetings took place in a hot tub with cans of beer sort of floating around in the water. And uh, it was was pretty chaotic. And the investor, uh, Don Valentine, who was the founder of the partnership Sequoia, um, was invited to come to one of these board meetings. And he was required to take his clothes off and get in the hot water if if he was going to be taken seriously as an investor. And the lucky thing was that Don Valentine, you know, had played water polo for the Navy. So he had a physique that meant that when he took his shirt off, his authority went up, not down. He could buff himself Um, up then. Yeah. 
And so, I mean, but but the serious point here is that it was a chaotic culture and Valentine was prepared to look at Atari and say, okay, they've invented these games which are popular. If we got a proper business structure in place, we could sell this game, you know, all across the United States as opposed to just in a few bars in Berkeley. The, the product market fit is so strong that never mind the fact that it's chaotic. All right, we're going to take a short break. And after that, we'll go deeper into the venture capital industry with Sebastian Malaby. I'm Philip C, BFM 89.9. You are listening to The Breakfast Grill, brought to you by U-Mobile. 5G now with you. Welcome back. I'm Philip C. And with me today is Sebastian Malaby, celebrated author on his latest book, The Power Law, Venture Capital and the Making of the New Future, as we go deeper into the history and future of the venture capital industry. And I guess in the book, you beautifully narrate so many stories. I mean, the number of stories as you, you know, go through the whole journey of the expansion at Silicon Valley, it was incredible from A16Z, Sequoia Capital, Kleiner Perkins, the interesting personalities from Masayoshi Sand to Peter Thiel. You know, when you when you try to narrate the whole development of the VC industry, perhaps can you mark out the two, three key pivots when you saw it, begin to take a different shape and size and structure fundamentally? Well, I think one pivot came in the 1970s. You know, Arthur Rock, as I said, had founded the industry in 57. It grew through the 60s. And then in the 1970s, in fact, 1972, um, Sequoia and Kleiner Perkins were both born. And they brought a, a few innovations. One was this idea that, you know, you go on the board and you're hands-on and so you can deal with chaotic companies. Mm. Another idea was stage-by-stage investing. So that's another risk mitigation strategy. If somebody says to you, I want to do a startup and it's going to cost, you know, 30 million um, to build this startup, you say, right, well, I'll give you, uh, you know, 1 million to begin with and we'll see how you're doing in three months or six months. Um, and so you dribble the capital out in a way that reduces the risk, because if it fails, it will fail fast, and you'll only lose 1 million, not 30. Uh, so that was one pivot point. I think um, going forward, uh, if I go to the, sort of the other end of the story, you have the um, specialization of the venture business with um, early stage seed investing, and particularly Y Combinator, which did this in a sort of incubator batch format to really turbocharge the company creation at the very beginning of the journey. And then at the other end of the journey, you get the rise of um, growth investing, where instead of writing, you know, a sort of $10 million check to a Series A company that's worth maybe $100 million, um, you, you know, you're, you're investing $100 million in a billion-dollar company. And that came about um, through a sort of crazy... Uh, concatenation of circumstances, uh, roughly really took off right after the 2008 financial crisis with an investment in Facebook made by a Russian, oddly, Yuri Milner, yes. who came into Silicon Valley and bet on Facebook in big size and made so much money that suddenly all of Silicon Valley was copying him and this growth investing culture began. And, you know, these, these stories of outsiders coming in, you know, germinating, creating, you know, and making these big bets, you get this impression that really the Valley took the best and the brightest. But in tandem, the book also paints a huge lineage, a huge uh, hierarchy, a huge 
you know, a line of descendants and, you know, of people from the start. So I guess the question is, does it really attract the best and brightest? Is there merit truly in the selection of the ideas? Yeah, I mean, there is this sort of suspicion always that it, there's a lot of luck. And I think that's baked into the power law distribution. If you've got an investor whose return profile is something like, you know, fail, 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 jackpot, fail, fail. You know, it, it looks like the jackpot is kind of a random piece of luck. Yeah. And when I first considered doing this book and I went and did the first couple of trips to Silicon Valley, I almost didn't really pursue it because I couldn't quite dispel that thesis that first of all, somebody gets lucky, then they have a good reputation and then the best entrepreneurs come to them, so they have great deal flow, so they continue to do well, not because they're skillful, but because, you know, they had initial luck followed by a sort of path dependency. And the reason I got over that suspicion and decided that it really was skill is that I began to spend enough time and get enough kind of deep answers um, about the investment process to see what the skill was, to understand how venture capitalists really think when they allocate money. And you know, to me, the intellectual mystery and this sort of excitement of the subject is getting inside a, a partnership like Sequoia and spending you know, hours and hours with the top partners about how they built the business and how they use behavioral science, for example, to correct human biases and the way that they might think about an investment. Um, and, and once you understand through proximity what the best venture capitalists are doing, I think you don't believe it's luck anymore. And that's why, in the end, the, you know, you paint two parallel stories of Sequoia Capital and Kleiner Perkins, where Kleiner Perkins was at its apex, but it had its precipitous fall, whereas Sequoia now is really the top dog in the industry. It's grown from strength to strength. You know, help me contrast why one performed so well and the other one just was disastrous in the end. Well, starting with Kleiner Perkins, you're right that in, in 2001, they were really, you know, the top partnership in the world. And if you looked at the list of the top individual investors, uh, Vinod Kosler from Kleiner Perkins was number one, John Doerr was number three, and they had several other, you know, very strong individuals. And then they became slightly a victim of their own success in the sense that they had all made so much money that they had enough capital to go off and start their own thing if they preferred to do that. Mm. And that's what happened. Um, and Vinod Kosler went and did his own partnership called Kosler Ventures. And there was another group called Radius that spun out with two of the Kleiner Perkins partners. And it sort of left John Doerr as the single dominant figure who was still there. And he recruited a bunch of people around him who were less good. They were either too young or in some cases actually too old. You know, they'd been super experienced in some other Silicon Valley kind of operating role. And they came in, but they weren't really investors. And it just, you know, the culture never gelled. And John Doerr was a fantastic, you know, massively intelligent salesman and sort of visionary for technology, but not a great manager of the partnership. Mm. And so it, that's an illustration of the way that you can have the top position and you can lose it. Because if you go forward to 2021, Kleiner Perkins was not in the top 10 anymore. I mean, it had gone from hero to zero, from number one to, you know, number 25. Very fast. Yeah, yeah, exactly, in, in a couple of decades. And, and, and 
you know, I, I really think, I mean, some people think it's because they made one bad bet on environmental technologies, clean tech, and that went wrong. But I think beneath that, there was a sort of degradation of the management and the internal chemistry of the partnership. The, some of the best people who who were in the partnership had left. And so instead of having a proper partnership where people debate things, um, there was one dominant figure and that was not a stable equilibrium. On the other hand, Sequoia really thought deliberately about how to nurture the younger partners, how to turn them into you know, brilliant but inexperienced people into brilliant and experienced people. Um, and so it was, you know, I got all these stories about, you know, someone like Rudolf Berta who joined, you know, when he was about the age of 30 and, you know, he had a fantastic pedigree as the chief financial officer at PayPal and uh, absolutely, you know, top student at Stanford Business School. But he hadn't been an investor and they they went about, you know, really training him carefully about, you know, both the intellectual, but also the emotional side of being an investor. Because yes. in venture, all your losses materialize before your wins. You can lose and the company goes um, bankrupt, you know, in 12 months. But to have a good exit could well take five years. And so, you know, he was really, in his own telling, you know, turned into a top investor thanks to the culture of Sequoia. And now he is the top guy at Sequoia. He He's taken it over. I don't know how old he is, but let's say he's in the mid-40s or something like that. And that is, you know, that's how you build a lasting company. You bring people up. And some venture partnerships are less good at the internal management side. And the key takeaway is that this is not just some acts of randomness. There is clearly, clearly some thought, deliberate structure and principles that people put in place, not only at a company level, but at a broadest ecosystem level to make this work. And this is why the venture capitalists, this, this breed of people called the venture capitalists, really make the ecosystem work, right? They just, they're not just a bank where they just donate money, isn't it, or give money out to, to, to unsuspecting young people to finance their crazy ideas. There's actually some thought to the process. There's actually a process where they get people networked together. The venture capitalist is not just a bank, Absolutely. And I think, you know, I kind of posed the um, question in my book, you know, why does one technology ecosystem, which has roughly the same number of engineers, overtake another technology ecosystem with the same number of engineers? I mean, what made Silicon Valley overtake Boston and MIT around about the mid-1980s? Because historically in America... You know, MIT and Boston and Harvard um, and Lincoln Labs, which was a defense lab, and, you know, Raytheon, DEC, Wang, all these institutions uh, around Boston were the tech heartland of the United States. And yet it was displaced by Silicon Valley. Why? What happened? And the answer is that, you know, this is drawing on on the work of a a famous book called Regional Advantage, uh, written about 30 years ago. Um, that, you know, there was more porousness in institutions in Silicon Valley. People moved from one place to another. They were liberated to do that. And so there was this culture of lots of startups with people hopping around. And so you could run multiple experiments on new technology ideas with multiple startups doing them. 
Whereas in Boston, it was much more vertically integrated. People didn't leave. It, you know, it was treacherous to leave and all that stuff. People didn't get liberated. And so ideas that a, you know, brilliant mid-level engineer might have in the research department of Wang, if the boss didn't like it, you know, that would be the end of the idea. We killed. Dead. Hmm. Kill. And so, you know, and, and if you think about how does this porous network in Silicon Valley function, the people who are really financially incentivized to make it work are the venture capitalists. It's their job to be meeting people, you know, all day so that they can find the next investment they want to do or so that they can find the, you know, chief financial officer that they're going to slot into the startup that they invested in six months ago or the four engineers that another startup wants to hire to build a prototype, you know, their job is to get up in the morning, have breakfast with one person, and then have 14 cups of coffee, hopefully decaffeinated <laughs> before they go to bed. And so they're, they're, they're rushing around connecting everybody, and that turns out to be a super fertile kind of, you know, there's, there's a, Mark Granovetter um, is a sociologist who wrote a famous paper, um, which is the most cited of all time in the social sciences. And his point, you know, his famous paper is called The Strength of Weak Ties. And it's super productive if you have a lot of people you know a bit um, because you have this vast network that you could just, oh, yes, so-and-so, that's the right person I should be founding this particular company with because they've got these skills. If you have a smaller number of stronger ties, you have less options um, in terms of how you might develop your next idea. And so that superiority of, of, of weak ties, having lots of weak ties, is something that venture capitalists uh, facilitate. And so they are the kind of, they're the, they're the creators of this um, social capital, if you like. And in the end, the question here is that this playbook that's been proven successful in Silicon Valley, is it, can it be replicated anywhere in this world? I think you're going to probably say yes, but are there different flavors to different locations? Or are they generally a consistent set of rules that you just have to follow? So you're right that my baseline answer is yes, you can do it anywhere. But let me add nuance to that. So it's important to have a big market. If you're going to invest in venture capital, you know, you need for the minority of cases where you really get a hit, it has to be a big hit. There has to be a power law effect where, you know, you really make a lot of money. And so smaller economies, which um, have a limited market size, make it much less attractive to pursue innovation. Um, and uh, one way of seeing this is to think about Israel. Israel is a small economy, but it has a lot of very excellent high tech. And the way they manage this is essentially they develop the product in Israel. And the moment they've got a product, you know, they set up a head office or a commercial office in America and they sell into the U.S. market. You need that big market for there to be enough upside to make the power law equation work. And I think, therefore, you know, for Southeast Asia, you would know better than I do. But my sense is that it works best if you can eliminate, you know, boundaries within ASEAN and yeah. try to make it one market, which is probably quite difficult in practice. But that should be the aspiration. And, and so aside from that market size point, I would also say that you need a, you need a kind of stable regime um, in terms of the regulation. Uh, you want to have clear 
rules around the ability to set up limited partnerships, the ability to issue stock options to employees. Those stock options should not be penalized in a tax sense, which is a mistake that many European governments have made in the past, where at the point where you issue the stock option to a startup employee, that startup employee has to pay tax immediately on the receipt of the options when the options aren't actually worth anything yet. It's called a dry tax. That's insane. Okay, so there are a few a few sort of regulatory things around tax and so forth. There's an important area of um, policy around transferring intellectual property out of universities mm. and into companies. It's important that if the government has, let's say, funded a university and then the university invents a basic technology that could be commercialized, I think the government should be quite generous about saying it can be transferred, the IP can be transferred to an entrepreneur who wants to set up a company without the government demanding, you know, massive upside and huge share of the royalties. Because it's in the interest of society that the startup gets started and that the technology is turned into a commercial product that makes people's lives better. The company succeeds, it grows, it employs people. And then you have other startup entrepreneurs who kind of spin out of that company. That's how you get the ecosystem started. So I think being generous in terms of the transfer of IP out of universities is a very important policy. So you highlight, I think, the role that government can play to create that ecosystem. Does it make sense, though, for government to get into venture capital itself? Only on a very limited basis. I mean, Israel did this quite well, where it offered very generous incentives for foreign venture capital operators to come into Israel um, and set up funds with probably Israeli partners, but, you know, some of the money was from outside. And once the first round of venture partnerships had done their investments and made money, the government basically withdrew and said, okay, now you understand how to do it. You're making money. We don't need to help you anymore. I think that sort of limited uh, involvement can be a good catalyst. What you don't want to do is do what the European Union has done, which is to become, you know, the government on a kind of permanent basis becomes, mm. um, you know, the largest limited partner in venture capital because public money demands lower returns that crowds out um, profit-seeking private money. And the private money, because it is profit-seeking, tends to be, you know, the most focused and ambitious about really getting involved with the startups and pushing them to succeed. And you need that you know, sort of red meat capitalist instinct um, uh, for for people to go the extra mile. I mean, it's not always an easy life being a venture capitalist. You know, one of the VCs from Benchmark, who I talked to, Benchmark being a kind of famous Silicon Valley partnership that backed companies like Uber and and so forth. Um, you know, he said, "Well, being a VC, what's being a VC? Well, it's really when you're about to leave the office on Friday evening." you get a call from one of your startup founders saying, my uh, chief financial officer has just embezzled some money. My engineer is having a nervous breakdown and is quitting. And I've got a medical problem. I need to talk to you. And you say, sure, I'll be there in 15 minutes. And you spend the rest of your weekend, you know, trying to <laughs> prop this poor guy up. Yeah. I mean, you have to be really on it all the time. And without big financial upside, most people are not likely to sustain that uh, for, you know, decades, which is what you need to do. So I, I do think private money has the sort of high-powered incentives that 
make venture capital work. And therefore, you don't want public money crowding out the private money on a permanent basis. So they have to have a clear exit strategy if they do get into the space. Correct. And, you know, fast forward to the future, right? The book highlighted perhaps many failed bets in in clean tech. Um, what's next, though? Because I think we are, we've seen enough of the retail commerce solutions that, you know, venture cap has driven forward, right? And it's many permutations. But what's next for the VC industry? Well, the VC industry is always following new technology waves. Um, and so where tech suddenly accelerates, you see the VCs, you know, piling in. Um, and, you know, right now, I'd say artificial intelligence is the hottest theme. If you look at the flows of money in the US venture industry, uh, to, to artificial intelligence, they've gone up massively. Um, it's a risky bet, because although I think artificial intelligence is pretty clearly going to deliver a huge amount of value to consumers in the next 10 and 20 years, what's not clear is which kinds of company get to profit from that, you know, because it could well be that this is something that Google and Microsoft and, you know, Baidu and a few other big companies, you know, capture and dominate because you need huge amounts of compute power. Mm. And, um, you know, you, you, you need really cutting end, edge engineering teams and lots of data. So some of the startups that are hot at the moment in AI may not ultimately become multi-billion dollar unicorns, uh, but that's the risk that the VCs are taking. Another trend I think now is that there have been enough foundational um, biotech breakthroughs, gene editing, very cheap gene sequencing, mRNA technology, which can be applied to the invention of new medicines. I think that's a very exciting area. There's always going to be necessary health and safety regulation around rolling out pharmaceuticals, and that's going to mean that you go through stage three trials, which are very expensive. And so it's always going to be a tougher, tougher to make the finances work for venture. But I think we've got to the point where there's enough exciting scientific advance that that will be a hot area. And by the way, those two things I've highlighted, artificial intelligence and biotech, they kind of link up because some of the biotech advances are AI driven. If you think about protein folding, which has been a sort of foundational problem in structural biology that was solved three years ago or something uh, by a group in London called DeepMind, which is owned by Google. And that's probably the, the single most exciting AI breakthrough in sort of pure science terms. Yep. And it unlocks a whole world of building new medicines that can bind onto proteins in the body now that we understand the shape of the proteins. Thanks, Sebastian. That was Sebastian Malaby, celebrated author on his latest book, The Power Law, Venture Capital and the Making of the New Future. I'm Philip C, BFM 89.9. The BFM Breakfast Grill is brought to you by U-Mobile. 5G now with you. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.